This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical advice. It exists only to entertain. In 1862, in the middle of the U.S. Civil War, a doctor and a general meet at a field camp for the Army of the Potomac to discuss the state of medical affairs for the Union Army. Hello there, who is it? It's just me. Uh, Do you have a moment, General McClellan? Dr. Letterman. Hello, yes, come on in. Can I offer you some whiskey and hardtack? The hardtack is especially salty and cement-like today. Oh, no thank you. Hard to pass up, but eh, that's okay. I find that if you dip the hardtack into the whiskey, it softens a bit. I'm sure it does. Find more for me. You just returned from the frontier, did you not? Tell me, doctor, how is the American West faring? Well, it's it's pretty bad, sir. Really, actually, really, really bad. Is it? I find that hard to believe, what with all that open-range, big-sky buffalo and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it's all those things, but uh, also uh, rampant gun violence. But the war is here in the East for the most part. I I don't follow. I'm sure the, the war is here, but everyone out West is shooting each other. I'm afraid it's been awfully meaningful to my training as a physician. I've taken care of so many wounded men in the last few years. Uh, that's what I came to talk to you about. Mm, hard tack. Right. Uh, so I'm concerned about our care of the wounded. What of it? We have robust field hospitals with the finest saws and bite blocks. Yeah, yeah, of course, but but it seems we have a problem getting our wounded men to the hospital. Men are left on the battlefield for days uh, without help. Uh, I and my fellow medical staff are not of much help to them out there. Gone? I think we need to organize a specialized group of men to carry the wounded off the battlefield. Interesting. I thought we had that all figured out already. Oh, we did? Yes, we've been... Having our trusty battlefield musicians dragging people off the field when they're not playing the music. The tuba players are especially helpful. Uh, you know, with all due respect, I think there's room for improvement. Uh, what if we had a system for training the fife soldiers? players, on the other hand, not so good at the job. Maybe you're right, Dr. Letterman. Let's talk further in the morning. I, I want to hear more about this plan. Uh, excellent. Much appreciated, General. Can I ask you a military question? Uh, why do we have tuba players on the battlefield? Mm, mostly for comic effect. Plus, what if it was all fifes? How annoying would that be? Eh, that's a good point. Lots of high-pitched fifing. Right? Nobody wants a fife solo. Welcome, everyone. This is Poor Historians, a podcast delving into the archives of medical history. As emergency physicians, we will explore the unusual ailments, treatments, physicians, and all related material having to do with the healing arts. I'm Max, and I'm joined here by my good friends Aaron and Aaron. 
Aaron, yeah, where's Mike? Somebody he he bailed. He bailed. He just I I did, it's too early for him. I think he hasn't woken That's, up yet. It is it is noon. I don't know what that is. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Along he, the he prime did the same meridian. thing I did last. He's uh, that parenting stuff. You know those kids. They need they need time. They need time. I thought you were I thought you were trapped on vacation because of all the flight changes and whatnot. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a variety of factors. You know, multifactorial. Uh, Weren't you feuding with a time portal computer? <laughs> Do you guys too. make up yet or what? Uh, I'm never going to make up with that thing. It, we're, we're never going to see eye to eye. I don't trust it. Either way, Aaron, I got a question for you. If you could do any Civil War epic facial hairstyle, which would you choose? Oh, yeah. And just mutton chops. Absolutely. Mm. Just the big old, mm. like not like more than sideburns, like so much more than sideburns. They need their own name. Yeah. And then right. Didn't the, the mutton chops, he leaves the chin open in the middle. Yep, and absolutely. I, I feel yeah, like absolutely. I have a bit of a weak chin, so it would be a perfect Civil War look because it really would accentuate oh sort of the little recessed chin there, like just really point out how that feature would look better with a full beard. Be more thought than I would have thought. So, <laughs> I, and I actually think that would look great. Uh, I think you should do that. So well, uh, t- effective today, Aaron is not shaving his chops. <laughs> I, for one, would definitely go with handlebar mustache for no reason. <laughs> right, right. No reason at all. So I, we do have a shout out this week. Uh, I wanted to point out a and and shout out a thank you to Brittany and Spencer, two big fans of the show, who sent us a picture of themselves and their children, all adorned in the Port Historians podcast gear. We're talking shirts. We're talking onesies. The whole family. Super awesome to grab that picture and have it sent to us. And so we wanted to say we appreciate you guys for listening and telling everybody about us because they literally seem to do that, whether they're here in our home base or they're out traveling. Many thanks, Brittany and Spencer. Yeah. Love it. Huge thanks. We love receiving that photo too. So anybody else, send them in. But guess what, Aaron? Yeah. What? We have a guest today. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you notice? Yeah, we do. I, I, there's another there's person sitting in this room look, with us. He, he looks different than I expected for Mike. So, we, yeah. Well, that is true. We do not have Mike here, but we do have Kyle Dalton here with us on the show. And he is a historian representing the National Museum of Civil War Medicine located in Frederick, Maryland. He brings 20 years of experience as a public historian and educator to our humble show. And in addition to his museum duties, he also spends his free time, much like we do, writing a bunch of stuff about history through his blog, British Tars, examining the lives of common sailors. Kyle, awesome to have you on the show. And before we get to the main topic here, tell our listeners, uh, well, a little about yourself and the Museum of Civil War Medicine, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure thing. And thanks again for having me on. Uh, We are three museums in one. Our main location is in Frederick, Maryland. That's the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. We also operate the Pry Field Hospital Museum, Pry House Field Hospital Museum on Antietam National Battlefield in conjunction with the National Park Service. And our third museum is in Washington, D.C. That's the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office. Really cool. So uh, do you work on all three of them or you have a role in all three of them? Yeah, um, I'm mainly at the main location in Frederick, uh, where I'm the membership and development coordinator. So I like raise money, crunch numbers, but I also do public history stuff. I get to research and write for our blog and our website. Uh, I run our social media, which let me tell you, running a Civil War medical uh, social media account for the last few years has been very interesting. I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's where uh, I often am, Monday through Friday. I do lead tours on occasion. So if you like what you hear today, you want to come 
come by the museum, get a tour from me, uh, just say so. We'll make it happen. And definitely on our end, we're going to make sure that everybody has the information in our show notes to find the museum. Check out the online stuff, too. You, de- you guys are doing awesome work on uh, I've looked through your YouTube videos, look through the stuff you've been posting on social media. And I have jealousy because you are doing <laughs> yeah, so much polished. more prolific work than uh, th- than us. Can you do our social media, too? <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it might be a little more fun to do yours, but it's literally my job to do social media. That's why I can be so prolific. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. That's true. It, it is, for anybody who's never done it, it is a whole job. But that being said, uh, of those three museums, Kyle, which one is your favorite? Ooh, that's a oh. tough call. They've all got their own thing going on, but I think I've got a, a soft spot for the Frederick location, our main location. I think it's the easiest introduction for a lot of people because it does sort of the whole conflict and medical care over that, how it changes. It's an easy introduction, um, but also Frederick's a great town. I live here just a few blocks from the museum. It's a great place to walk around, lots of great food. Uh, yeah, totally recommend it, even if you don't come to my museum, but please do come to my museum. I think you just asked him to pick a favorite child there. Like, which of the three museums is your favorite? Like, I like them all equally, Max. All equally. Well, I would like to thank Kyle for having the realistic answer. There's like one that's a little above. I mean, come on. No comment, Max. No comment. Well, excellent. So, you know, the, the nice thing here is that producing a podcast and doing all the work that we do, as Kyle knows, is a ton of work. So if you can ever outsource that and trick somebody else into doing your own homework for you, that's always an excellent way to go forward. I think that's a good life skill for anybody to learn. And uh, actually, kindly, Kyle uh, brought his <laughs> brought the material with him today and, and <laughs> did do our homework for us. So even though we are absent, Mike, we we uh, we had somebody help fill in and excellently. So let's uh, let's jump to the the main segment. So let me start by bumming everybody out. Oh, I want you to imagine. Brain. Yeah, <laughs> it is Civil War medicine. Uh, <laughs> but for a moment, I want you to imagine the industrial scale of the Civil War. The last major conflict on American soil was the War of eighteen twelve. In that conflict, between two and only a half percent of enlisted soldiers became casualties. Fifty years later, according to my uh, colleague Benjamin Forrest, three percent of the U.S. Army engaged at Gettysburg was permanently assigned to just remove the dead and the wounded. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bad assignment, man. It's got the vibe of the show. Just nailed it right out the gate. <laughs> yeah, like I said, you gotta you gotta start when you're talking Civil War medicine. You gotta start with just like how devastating this really is. Uh-huh. It's hard to imagine. Even if the medical establishment and the Army Medical Department had been fully trained and equipped for mass casualty events, and spoilers, they super weren't. Hmm. They still would have had virtually no experience. Nine out of every 10 army doctors had never treated a gunshot wound. And those are army doctors, guys who are surrounded by guns. Yeah, and I, I would like to argue that like war by itself is pretty much a mass casualty event, so this surprises me. Yeah, it's uh, it, and I think it it's true that war is a mass casualty event, but we hadn't really had a conventional war of that style since the revolution. We'd been fighting in other areas. We'd been fighting in other countries where it's also easier for the public to miss all of those failures uh, instead of being right next to the telegraph lines and just down the road. So I think that's part of it. Well, I was going to say, it's also a lot harder to doom scroll on a telegraph. 
(laughs) (laughs) They managed to pull it off, though. When you get to the middle of the Civil War, those newspapers, they are rough. (laughs) Pharmacology and pathology didn't really change that much over the course of the Civil War. They did a little bit, but not that much. Trauma care, though, really changed. Mm. It evolved rapidly. Hospital design administration, formalization of triage, supervision of surgeon, professionalization of nursing. One of the most important reforms, uh, and I think we kind of spoiled it in, in just saying what this episode is, and if you've clicked on this, you've probably seen the title, but it's the organization of the U.S. Ambulance Corps. You know, the other nice thing that sort of happens... Although a little bit before this time, now granted they were still very guilty of it, as far as I have seen, is stop fishing out bullets from places. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah that that continues. That keeps going for a while. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that the fascination is with that. Like, just go get the bullet immediately. It it just it leads to so many problems, and for some reason, it just persists so Max, much. They do it the in all day. the movies. That's how you cure the wound. You pull the bullet out, <laughs> you drop it in the thing, it goes clink, and that person. That's, Lives. That's how you cure them. I get it. <laughs> Anywho, the ambulance war. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the scale of casualties. They're dealing with thousands of people, often in very short periods of time. I want to go back and talk about what it was like before the Civil War, before they got to those scale of casualties. How did they deal with removing the wounded, with medical evacuation? The short version is that it basically didn't exist in America. Just leave them there? Not exactly, but they didn't have any system for it. France had established a permanent ambulance system in the Napoleonic Wars, but here in the States, there was no civilian ambulance service. For the military, it was, to quote one medical historian, a post-battle scavenger hunt. Yeah, it's worse scavenger hunt. (laughs) Yeah. This is true in in bigger conflicts. I mentioned the Revolution was a pretty big one, Uh, Mexican-American War. It was ingrained in the antebellum army, which was busy oppressing indigenous people in the West. With short fights involving a few soldiers, often in remote places, the army could afford to wait until the fighting was done to remove the wounded. Mm, A more leisurely pace. I think that's uh, (laughs) usually better for union labor and things of that sort. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, they don't go into overtime that way. They mostly used two-wheeled ambulances because they were really maneuverable in rough terrain. They couldn't carry many patients, but they weren't dealing with big casualties anyway. Is, is a two-wheeled ambulance a furniture dolly? It kind of is. It's got a roof, though. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. And it yeah. is it is drawn by a horse, so it's it's bigger, but it's you know smaller than you imagine. When you think of a wagon, you think of like you know Oregon Trail. Yeah. This is like half of that. So this is basically the Monty Python scene going through the streets. <laughs> the cart full of... Like, uh, your dad. I mean, kind of, yeah. <laughs> so what we've established so far, and we've learned that Monty Python drew directly from the Civil War. <laughs> yes. All yes, right. That is, you could cite me on that, uh, I expect. I was going to. <laughs> So the medical department, they could afford to rely on volunteers in this period. Uh, Again, they're waiting until these fights are done. These are pretty short fights. There's not that many people. They especially relied on musicians, Mm -hmm. buglers, fifers. You joked about tuba players, but literally tuba players. They didn't have much to do when the battle was going on. So they would put their instruments aside and they would go pick up the wounded. I, I I have so many questions. Like obviously you want the tuba guys because they you know they're carrying around tubas which are not well, to my knowledge. Did they play during light. the battle? When did they play? Was it they had like why a why do you have tuba players on the field? <laughs> Kyle, that's all I want to know today. <laughs> they didn't have tuba players on the field except as 
as medical evacuation. They had these bands in in like army fortifications or uh, oh, garrisons or okay. even going with the camp. They thought it would help with morale. They could use it for like uh, special events like officers balls or whatever. Oh, we'll okay. just leave those words right there. I was like, uh, there's a, there a Mike joke that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, we can tell Mike's missing. There's no comment about <laughs> musicians handling officers balls. That's So you're saying the tuba player did not just like follow around people making silly tuba noises while they walked? <laughs> I wish they did, but uh, we don't have any primary source evidence for that. Sure. Uh, <laughs> the one the one guy the tuba plays every time he runs he's like what are you saying man <laughs> who is the most respected of the buglers fifers and tuba players Ooh. like is one cooler than the other because obviously you know there's 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 hierarchies within like what people think a modern band like the drummer is you know so and so but really the lead guitarist blah 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 was it like man the buglers were, were the cream of the crop and you just you got relegated to fife or tuba <laughs> I, well, honestly, the drummer, I think, is the one that gets the most respect because they also get mm. to keep carrying the drum into combat. They're the musician that actually gets to go out there. Mm. Well, that's true of buglers, too, for the cavalry, because they would use those to, to send orders. You were supposed to be able to hear the drum or the bugle over over firing. So those guys actually did go into combat. Okay. So th- basically what I'm saying is the fifers, they are the least useful because they have the most annoying <laughs> instrument. They can't carry the dead <laughs> and they don't actually do anything during battle. <laughs> I think that's a fair assessment. And that's kind of a thing that they recognized at the time is that some of these musicians were literally children. We're talking like preteen, like 11 years old. They they were physically incapable of carrying these stretchers. The average stretcher weighed between 23 and 26 pounds, and the average soldier weighed about 144 pounds. So the average stretcher bearer is carrying 86.75 pounds. And that's sometimes up to a mile behind the lines. So these kids literally couldn't do it. Well, I'm sure stepping over like, you know, horrifically wounded casualties, uneven terrain does not make any of that easier. Bring on the tuba players, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there definitely are adult ones. Like it, it is, they do exist. They do seem to be better at the job, but even then they're not trained for it. They're They're not exposed to combat on the regular. So now they have mm-hmm. to go out while people are shooting and pick up horribly wounded people who are screaming. They're not going to be great at it. I think that's, that's, you know, fair to say, like, that's not really fair for them to be expected to. But uh, yeah, that's that's where it was before the Civil War. They had musicians do it. They gave them virtually no training. And a lot of those musicians couldn't do it anyway. That sounds like a good system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not great. The Confederates never came around on reforming this system, if you could even call it that. I mean, that, that tracks because the Confederacy, I mean, the whole reason it exists is it's supposed to reform. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Confederate Congress did pass a bill that in part created an ambulance organization. Jefferson Davis vetoed it, though, and when the bill did finally get revised and signed, it didn't include anything about the infirmary corps, which is what the Mm. Confederacy usually called their ambulance organizations. At least they had a name for it. Yeah, and there there are some halting attempts. There's a few organizations that call themselves infirmary corps. They're often not very big. They're kind of isolated. They're not getting like a lot of assistance from the main government. So they do exist, but they're very small, and there's no national or military-wide effort. General Beauregard, for his command, issued orders every year of the war stating that ambulance men should only be composed of, and this is a direct quote, the least effective under arms. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, number one, Beauregard is the most Southern name that has ever existed. 
Oh, and he's the most southern looking guy you've oh, ever he seen. He has to be. He has to be. <laughs> you got to look at a photo of him. It's there is. There's definitely this weird long-standing tradition within, especially. Uh, you can even say emergency medicine, especially back in the day, where you're like the the least prepared are thrown to the front lines for reasons yes. that, in retrospect, seem insane. <laughs> yes. It's it's definitely a trend in the Confederacy to to keep doing that. And in the first years of the war, it's true for the U.S. as well. The difference, of course, is the Confederacy persists with this. Mm. In General Lee, the famous General Lee, never heard of him. Oh yeah, yeah he's a, you might you know maybe turn on the news, uh, you might see something. There's, oh, have you uh... seen the news? No, no, my friend, <laughs> never. Uh, so he, he did issue orders, very simple orders for creating an infirmary corps, but he didn't say how they were to be trained, who was to be composed of, whether it would fall under the medical department or military command. In his general orders number 94, Lee instructed that two men from each company be detailed to care for the wounded in each engagement. But that's it. That's all it says. Just two dudes sitting, sitting Just at the end. Just two guys. <laughs> it's, hey, we it's all like know just, that two dudes... <laughs> have persisted throughout the annals of medical history. Aaron, have you ever seen uh, something as a result of two dudes? Uh, yeah, a few times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two dudes get up to a lot of trouble. I, yeah. <laughs> you know what? They were mad because they were disrespected in the Civil War. We should tell Kyle what that's oh, that about, is, though. That is canon, yeah. As a historian, I feel like I'm missing something here. Yeah. <laughs> now, Aaron, please explain. So uh, when somebody comes in and something has happened to them that they don't want to necessarily share the in the, details in the of, emergency department, in the emergency department. So a patient comes in in the middle of the night, they got something happened to them bad and they got uh, assaulted almost always without fail. It was two dudes that jumped out <laughs> while, of nowhere. While they were minding their own while business. While they were minding their own business. <laughs> <laughs> And we thought about like, this a lot. It's always two dudes. I think yep. two two is enough so you don't feel like you got beat up by one other dude. Because then you would feel bad. You're like, I should have been able to take the one dude. It, it reminds me of the uh, the Simpsons where they have that guy and he goes into the uh, the ER and he's bleeding out of his gut. And he goes, uh, I fell on my bullet. Yeah. And the, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You totally get that. It is, yeah. it is, see, this is not far off. This is, this exactly. is what we deal with. So just never underestimate the power of two dudes to accomplish yeah. things. They can, they can get it done. <laughs> in the worst way. The big thing you see in Confederate treatments of like who should be in the ambulance corps is like, do we have two guys or three guys? That's mm. like the whole conversation they're having and they don't institute it anyway. So it kind of doesn't matter. Fair. And that might've been how it went for the U S uh, like I said, for the first year and a half of the war or so there really wasn't any movement on fixing this. They were doing the same stuff. The Confederacy was doing wounded men stayed on the, the field for days, sometimes even weeks after a battle. That's uh, go ahead. No, I, I it's so grim. I had to make a noise of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's probably best if we try to put ourselves in that situation and understand exactly what happened in those scenarios. And, and oh, hey, the time portal's buzzing. On a Civil War battlefield, 1862. Hello there. Over here. I'm injured, but alive. Hi there, sir. Time to get you out of here. Oh, excellent. Wait, are you by yourself? Sure am. What are you like? 11 years old? No, I'm 13. Oh, right. That's more reasonable. No offense, kid, but how are you going to get me out of here? Uh, I guess, I suppose I'll drag you. I mean, let's, I'm going to get this leg. Ow, not that one. I was shot. Right, right, right. Sorry, sorry. Uh, how about the other leg? Mm, 
Well, this doesn't seem to be working. Could you maybe go and get some help? I'm all the help there is, sir. I, I, I'd have to go back to the field hospital to fetch some others to drag you out of here. I, I mean, I, I can do that if you like. I think I would like you to do that, yes. I'm concerned about dying here if you don't do that. Okay, I'll, I'll take me a little bit to get back there, and I'll, I'll get the attention of someone. They're always busy amputating and stuff. Amputating? Yeah, lots of amputations. They're quite good at it. Do they do anything besides amputation? No, it doesn't seem like it. Limbs everywhere, really. You know, on second thought, maybe I'll just stay here. I, are you sure? I, what about your leg wound? Maybe they could amputate you all better. No, that, that's okay. I've been here for a few days, so there's already a healthy crop of maggots seeing to the wound. I'd hate to disturb them with an amputation now that you mention it. I'm sure I'll be fine. Thanks for the offer, though. Gross. Well, have it your way. I hope it all turns out for you. Yeah, I mean, all bleeding stops eventually, right? Right, right, right. So, 13 years old. Those were the days. How old are you? 15 and a half. Yikes. Yep, yep, not great. Nope, sure isn't. Sure isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that interruption. That, uh, That time portal just kicks on at the weirdest times. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's definitely the most inconvenient times portal. Just it's impressive, though, isn't it? Yeah. Cal, what do you think of the time machine? Well, it uh, it's pretty impressive technology. It works better than the credit card machines at my museum. But <laughs> look at all the tubes. I mean, my, it's just a series of tubes and all kinds of wires going everywhere. I don't know how this thing works. You made that comment. I do want to warn you. I've been told by my children I should be nice to the robots so that when they uprise, when they remember who has been mean to them. It's a sentient computer, Aaron, not a robot. I think you're going to offend the sentient computer by calling it a robot. We're all done. We're all done. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, sorry about the interruption. What were we talking about? Something problems of wounded soldiers and battlefield for days. No No official system to evacuate them. Kind of a mess, right? Yeah, yeah, we talked about how bad everything was, and it's pretty bad. But then along comes this skinny 30-something doctor from Pennsylvania. Dr. Jonathan Letterman is an awesome guy. We should have a totally different conversation all about him sometime. He's the patron saint of our museum. Hmm. To keep it quick, all we really need to know for this conversation is that he'd been in the Army for a while, served throughout the West. He had more exposure to, uh, more exposure to trauma care than most doctors and an open mind. Well, it's definitely sad how often we come across having an open mind as a thing that seems to propel great figures in medical history. It's like it's something difficult to cultivate. (laughs) How many people have we talked about, Aaron, that just like had an open mind and changed and revolutionized medicine? Yeah, most of them were just like, how about this way? What we're doing isn't working. And then everyone else is like, no, you can't do that. That's crazy. And then, yeah, they're all wrong. So... It's often like every time you read medical history and it's some big guy like Liston, they're always like, oh, and he also had good bedside manner, which was unusual for the time. And it's like, you see it every single time. (laughs) It is always, yes. It's always funny. They're like, no, and actually, nice person. Just just throwing it out there as a bonus. (laughs) Everybody else is like, you can't wash your hands and get back in bed, you stupid. I don't know. Just. This famous Victorian surgeon actually cared about his patients is, is an exception. <laughs> wow, that's, that should not be an exception, but it is. 
And- yeah, well, that's certainly the way with with Letterman. He's he's a well liked guy, and he rises through the ranks once the war starts. In August of sixty two, he's the medical director for the Army of the Potomac. That's the main U.S. Army in the East. It's arguably the most important army in the field. They both defend the U.S. Capitol and push toward the Confederate Capitol. Potomac. They're not making those anymore, right? There was like the Potomac Trans Am, Sunfire. What was the other famous <laughs> Potomac? I wasn't sure where you were going with that at first, and then, <laughs> then you got there. <laughs> nice, nice pun. Yeah. August of 60. August of 62. Is that, is that the summer of love? Or is that the oh, no, that's, that's the summer of 69. Yeah. Mm, indeed. What, what kind of drugs do they use in the summer of 62, 1862? <laughs> uh, opiates mostly. Yeah. Uh, tried and true. So Letterman is in the Army of the Potomac, 62. He's working with uh, General George B. McClellan, and they got along famously. McClellan's kind of an abrasive guy, but he and Letterman work together really well. Letterman convinces him to issue new orders, establishing the foundation of mass casualty response to this day, the Letterman system. For Gen X listeners, you make a top 10 list, right? And then you list all the patients you're going to pick. Is that the Letterman system? <laughs> now it's it's a multi-tiered approach to care. Uh, begins at the moment of wounding and moves through discharge from the army. Today, in the military medical establishment, they call this the chain of survival. But it's still it, it is the foundation. In World War II, uh, Major General Hawley, who was in charge of medical care during D Day, wrote that he thanked God every day for Doctor Letterman. He saw a direct line from the creation of this system to uh, trauma care in World War II. Interesting. Hmm. And it's the chain of survival. I mean, that's the exact way they talk about EMS transport and uh, care today. So it's got to be built on that same structure. Oh, it absolutely is. And, and we'll get into also like where that uh, initial step comes from moving it from military to civilian. But for, for this first part, for during the Civil War, when he creates it, the first step on this path, this Letterman system, is medical evacuation. So Letterman created the United States Ambulance Corps. There's a typo here. It says C-O-R-P-S. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's that's correct. No, that's, uh, it's silent s. That's right. That makes no sense as an English. Well, why does it says corpse? I know it's. I, it does. That's, it's the French. It's that's it? where we get it from. Yeah, core comes. I think. No, I'm not so sure. Now that you said that. <laughs> We make it was one of those things. Like, so both Aaron and I were English majors back back before we did this whole doctoring thing, and so I, I have to appreciate all the idiosyncrasies in the language, and I just don't get some of these words. Nor do, but I also don't have the energy to look them all up. So we're just going to let this one be. <laughs> well, then in uh, the U.S. Ambulance Corps is the first permanently assigned, robust, specifically trained ambulance organization in American history. So again, they had like ideas of it. They had ambulance wagons, but they never actually like made an organization. So this is permanent. It's specifically trained. It has guys that are assigned to it. To avoid the same problem the Confederacy had with a bunch of screw ups being assigned to the ambulances, Letterman orders that only active and efficient soldiers be permitted. Active and efficient is a quote. I would think that the passive and disorganized soldiers were a bad choice to save lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would agree. They were subject to review. They were assigned by their, their military commander. They weren't chosen by the surgeon. But the surgeons got the chance to review and reject them. So there were unfit men that were assigned to the Corps, but were immediately sent back to the ranks. 
Yeah. So you still have this ideology too, like they did in the Confederacy, of getting the least effective under arms, getting the screw-ups out of the army and putting them somewhere where they don't have a gun. So find the worst soldier that was pretty good at carrying and following new <laughs> types of orders. Does not seem like the worst way to go about it, to be honest. And there's also, this is an era before mental conditioning, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big thing we do now where we try to like get soldiers used to the sounds, the trauma of combat. Sure. Uh, they didn't have that back then. So there were a lot of guys who were very good soldiers, but just couldn't pull the trigger, who mm-hmm. weren't you know mentally ready to take a life or fight. And so those guys were probably a pretty good fit too. They could just send them off where they're like, you know, you're not like deserting. You're not a problem. You're doing your job, but you can't fight. And so this would be a good fit for them. That does seem like a better system. The uh, men that are assigned are then traded how to load wounded men into stretchers without exacerbating their wounds, how to hold them uh, to prevent them from spilling out of the litter, how to match the pace of their fellow bearer. So the guy up front would walk with his right foot, the guy in back would walk with his left. I mean, they're, they're really thinking about it up to the point of figuring out how to carry a stretcher upstairs while keeping it level. That makes sense. I mean, like... It seems like before this, this whole evacuation routine is essentially a comedy of errors, like a Three Stooges routine. I mean, yeah, people falling much. out of stretchers, getting tossed down this, flights of yeah. stairs. By the stuff they thought of what was happening before that. <laughs> okay, yeah. we got it. Right, here's how you walk. Like, I mean, flopping. come on. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it is kind of true, though. You see an example of this in the Confederacy, because again, they don't have this system. There's this famous general, Stonewall Jackson. He's wounded in a friendly fire incident. And they load him onto a stretcher, and none of these guys are trained. They carry him too high. The stretcher is carried at shoulder height because it's easier to carry a heavy person that way Mm -hmm. instead of down by the waist. And they have four guys carrying it instead of two. One Mm. guy trips and spills him five feet out of the stretcher, and he lands on his wounded arm. Hmm, they load him funny. back on, they do the exact same thing, and then another guy gets wounded while carrying him, and he falls out again on the same arm. Uh, but, you know, many years later, I'm sure they could laugh about it. <laughs> well, Jackson couldn't. He was dead, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. never mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel too bad about laughing at that one. It seems, again, <laughs> on brand for the Confederacy. Shoot your own guy and then spill him a couple times. But. <laughs> so the U.S. version, as, as you can see, is like it's a pretty big difference in success rates. So much so that the casualties of wounded Union soldiers, mortality rate of u- wounded Union soldiers is 20% less than wounded Confederate soldiers. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yikes. That's a massive Yikes. effect. I mean, we struggle. There's, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, but is it statistically significant? <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the p value on that? That's the important part. Okay, it seem it, it does seem to pass a sniff test. I'm sure it probably. We've is. got a, about seven hundred thousand casualties to draw from. I don't know if that's a significant sample size ah, for yes. this. <laughs> I think that passes. I am not good enough at statistics to know, but it seems like it should be. So the U.S. Ambulance Corps is a huge success. In 1864, they make it national. They pass the Ambulance Corps Act through Congress. It goes to all U.S. armies, not just the one that Letterman was in charge of. And uh, the year after the war, 1866, the first of two civilian ambulance organizations are founded in the U.S. Both of these organizations are founded by veterans of the Ambulance Corps. Hmm. Both of those ambulance companies still operate today. Good Samaritan Hospital in Cincinnati and NF, NYFD EMS Station Number 8 out of Bellevue Hospital. Oh, man. That's cool. 
That's that's yeah, EMS history. That'd be a fun one to visit. They they got got have a lot of pride in that. I mean, one of the first. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of topic to talk about there, especially from a modern emergency standpoint. I mean, uh, we can maybe do it on a future show, but what many people may not realize is that not only is the way that you are transported by an ambulance to the hospital more of a somewhat re- still somewhat recent phenomenon. We're talking kind of paramedics becoming, I believe, off the top of my head, 60s and 70s is kind of when this mm. starts to happen. In our own specialty, emergency medicine was not an officially recognized specialty until 1979. So a lot of this whole system of getting somebody who's injured somewhere to a hospital for definitive care, this wasn't always a well laid out system, obviously dating back to the Civil War, but even in somewhat modern times. And it's kind of interesting that it's one of those problems. We solve a lot of problems in civilization, but some things that we leave towards the (laughs) later stages are a little surprising. (laughs) And I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody who uh, has heard of America in the last few years. But the Civil War, not everything that comes out of it is good. Uh, But this is one. This is one where we can say (laughs) without qualification, every time you see an ambulance blazing down the street, that's a direct descendant of the U.S. Ambulance Corps uh, as created by Dr. Letterman. So the the only problem with this whole episode so far, Kyle, is that you know you started of a, a, us off on the appropriate dark note, but then you get all positive, and we're not used to that. Yeah, and it's just stuff that's working. I'm not sure how to deal with that. So well, I can come on again and talk about something way more depressing. <laughs> more so the Civil War, I got a lot to draw from. <laughs> oh well, you know what? I think uh, I think we can count on that. I would uh, I would uh, like to bum out our audience as much as possible in the future, but you know what? Why don't we leave it on a high note once in a while to see how it goes? Yeah, yeah, we could. Yeah, it's it, so. There's this whole concept in EMS systems between what's called stay and play and scoop and run, and most U.S. systems are scoop and run, so they take the patient and move them right away. And in Europe, there's more of a general sense of we're going to stay and treat the patient in the field. And this makes perfect sense. This is the roots of that system. And it's, I didn't have time to get into it, but, uh, and we're still recording, so maybe you can find a way to work this in if you want to. One thing that I found really interesting is that even though the Confederacy has very few and very small ambulance organizations, those are trained in first aid. Mm. So much so that there's even a surgeon who does dissections of of the medical term for corpses, uh, cadavers. <laughs> cadavers. He does dissections of cadavers with his ambulance men to show them like how the human body works. They're oh. collecting bandages and they're like recruiting barbers uh, because they're like, oh, yep. these guys know how people yep. bleed. Yep. Uh, yep, and they're they're actually trying to do like on the field first aid. And the U.S. Ambulance Corps doesn't have that. As as much of a step forward as this is. None of the ambulances carry bandages. None of them carry tourniquets. None of them carry medicine. They are just meat wagons. And the mm. idea is that they they want the surgeon to be the one who does the work. They want the yeah. surgeon to be the guy who's bandaging, who's giving drugs, who's doing minor surgery. And they don't want these untrained, uh, quote unquote, untrained guys doing that. It's a bit different nowadays. Yeah. Just yeah, a bit. Is. Yeah. EMS <laughs> professionals are highly trained, but they still, oh, there yeah. still is definitely in a, that emphasis on getting folks there. I mean, just to yeah. blows my mind how far it's come. I, I still remember I had one scene call. I saw an ambulance crew get a person out of a lot where he had been shot and to the ambulance, which is about five or six miles away through city streets in, in five minutes, literally five minutes. And I was wow. like, how did you? I guess like it was the middle of the night. So it's like they must have had a, I think the EMS systems now control the signals. But I was just like, oh man, that is crazy. You That's got fast. this guy here. 
I mean, that's scooping. That's not that's scoop and run to an incredible degree. And if you think about, they used to leave people on the field for days. I mean, this the yeah concept shift there is amazing. So that's yeah, a really cool. I love knowing the roots of things. And now every time a ambulance goes down the street, <laughs> just to think of the history of that, that's really fun. I love it. Well, I will say that is probably about all we have time for today. Super many thanks to Kyle Dalton for coming on to the show and sharing this information. Yes, sir. We would love to have you back and we'll talk again in the future about uh, some more Civil War collaborations. This is our first Civil War episode, which I'm even surprised by. We appreciate everyone listening and we'd love to hear from all of you out there. If you'd like to send us a message or provide feedback... We can be reached through our website, www.poorhistorianspod.com. There you will find links to our social media sites. We take emails at poorhistorianspod at gmail.com and work to respond to all posts on our various social media accounts. If you have time, please go and leave us a nice five-star review on iTunes or whichever platform you choose. This does help elevate our show and find more have, help more people find the show in the first place. And if you're old-fashioned, try expressing your feelings to us through a primal interpretive dance. I'm sure Mike would be into that. Anyway, till next time. Poor historians are... There's no Mike to interrupt me. So, Kyle, can you remind our listeners one more time about your work, the museum, and where they can find your stuff? That's right. We're the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, located in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. Look up National Museum of Civil War Medicine. You'll find us there. And if you liked this episode, consider supporting our effort to restore a reproduction ambulance wagon. You'll find that on our website, civilwarmed.org. Excellent. And I will have that linked in our show notes. And we look forward to next episode in the future. Hope you do, too. Was that historically accurate? <laughs> Everything but the bite, bite blocks. <laughs> oh, there's no bite blocks? <laughs> I couldn't think of an accent, Max. I just could. I was like, I oh, didn't either. I, I just was like, I just, no. So. You, don't, you don't, Kyle, you don't get to hear our accent work. It's, it's better for all of us, I'm sure. It's embarrassing. You, you, for us. you muted yourself during that, didn't you, Kyle? I did, yes. <laughs> just, okay, good. You didn't hear any of that. Perfect. Uh, there's no bite blocks? Really? No, they, they uh, almost everything was, was with anesthesia in this period. Mm. Oh, well, that's less. <laughs> less, less grim. It's, I, think it's, <laughs> I, think, I think it's grim enough, I think. I think it gets plenty grim. That's right. Hold on just a second. My wife's got to go upstairs right next to me. I don't want that much. You got it. You're not the whisperer. It's fine. <laughs> she want to hang out on the show? <laughs> do you want to be on the show? They're asking. <laughs> Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I was like, no, thanks. Yeah, it's no. <laughs> Guy has creepy facial hair. I'm not joining that show. <laughs> nice. Was that, was that also Nicely historically accurate? Done. That's pretty that's pretty close, yeah. Nice. Seal of approval. You heard it here. <laughs> and he's and he's a professional too, so Absolutely. Yeah. And historians are never wrong about anything. <laughs> That's, that's, yeah, that's been proven by history. Yes. Uh, either are doctors, so we are in good company. Uh, so with that, we appreciate everyone listening. Well, love- you know, could, Kyle, do you want to remind us where to find you? Um, oh, we're going to do that at the us- end. Oh. oh, I've got it. See, I got read the document. Oh, Aaron. no, I don't Look do at that. the document. See, Max is so right long. Here. This is no, here. What is this, like four, even- five pages? I can't know. It's I can't. got... There's tags here. Look, right here. See? (laughs)
In fact, oh, look, I wrote Mike interrupt. No, so <laughs> pick which one of the three is clearly the amateur. I'm going to give you a minute here. <laughs> I'm sorry, Max. <laughs> 